My name is Josh, and I am on staff here at Reality. I work with community groups mostly. And uh, we are continuing our series today in the I Am Statements of Jesus. And uh, what uh, the kids' ministry people just shared is honestly a perfect segue because we're talking about Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. And I swear that we, we didn't actually plan that. It just kind of happened. Um, so it works out perfectly. So if you guys could open your Bibles to John 10, um, verse 1. Actually, we're going to start in chapter 9, verse 35. And before uh, we start reading, I want to give a little bit of background of what happens in John 9, because I actually think it will really inform and be important to when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So in John 9, it's this really famous and wonderful story of Jesus healing a blind man. So him and his disciples are walking down the street, and they come across a man who is blind and begging on the side of the road. And one of his disciples asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this blind man or his parents, that he was born blind? And I'm assuming the blind man was like, dude, I can hear you. I'm not deaf. Maybe don't ask that right in front of me. Um, but Jesus says, you know what? That's not how it works. I'm going to bring him healing and give him his sight so that you can see the power and the works of God. And so he spits on the ground kind of weird, makes mud out of the dirt and puts it on the blind man's eyes and then says, go wash in a nearby pool. And the blind man goes and he washes and he can see. He is healed of his blindness. And so he walks back into uh, his community, I'm assuming, and people are like, aren't you the blind beggar? He's like, yep, I'm the blind beggar. And they're like, you used to be blind, right? And he's like, yep, I used to be blind. So you're not blind anymore? No, no, I'm not blind anymore okay, how, how did that happen? Like, what is going on here? And he says, well, you know, it's kind of a funny story. A guy named Jesus came, and he spit on the ground and made mud, put it on my eyes, told me to go wash in this pool, and now I can see. And so this story begins to go around in this community, and eventually he ends up in front of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the Jewish ruling class of the time. They basically had a lot of power and privilege and influence in society. And so they bring the blind man in front of him, uh, in front of them, and they ask what happened. And so the blind man tells his story, and the Pharisees key in on the fact that Jesus healed the blind man on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is supposed to be a day of rest, and some of the Pharisees considered the fact that Jesus healed someone who was born blind and gave him sight work. Um, by the way, this was a miracle that had never been done before in history, at least as far as we know. And so instead of focusing on this miraculous healing, they begin to get mad that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And then they actually doubt that this blind man was even blind to begin with. And they were like, how do we know that you were actually born blind from birth? And so they bring his parents in. And his parents are like, yeah, that's our son. Uh, he was definitely blind his whole life. And he can definitely see now. Uh, we don't really know how that happened. And frankly, he's an adult. He can speak for himself. So please keep us out of this. So they bring the blind man back one more time, and they say, look, give glory to God because we know that Jesus is a sinner. And the blind man, he has this great line where he says, look, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. This is what I know. I was blind, and now I can see. It feels like that piece is getting missed here. We should really be focusing on that portion of this story. So this back and forth happens, and eventually it ends with the Pharisees basically mocking him to his face and saying, look, you were seeped in sin by your very birth. Get out of here. And they kick him out of the entire community. They excommunicate him. And Jesus hears what happens, 
And that's where we'll pick up in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when they found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And who is he, sir, the man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this, and asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. And then he goes into, uh, I am the good shepherd. He says, very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them all out on his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his, sh- his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. So Jesus said again, okay, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. When he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Jesus, when I read these words, I am really struck by your very tangible love for someone like the blind man. That you would go out of your way to talk to him, to touch him and heal him, and to bring him into your flock and your fold when he's been excommunicated. I pray that today we would understand that that is your heart for us. I pray that you would spark in us a curiosity to to hear and learn about all the different layers that go into when you say, I am the good shepherd. And God, I pray that you would invite us and lead us into a time of honest and vulnerable interaction and surrender to you, our good shepherd. Be with us, Father. Thank you. Amen. 
Okay, so what do you guys picture in your mind when you hear Jesus say, I am the good shepherd? If you're anything like me, you get maybe this fuzzy and vague picture of Jesus being our spiritual shepherd. Um, In some very uh, sentimental, spiritual way, I am a sheep and I need to follow Jesus, my shepherd. Maybe you even get a picture, um, like I do in my mind, of a terrible piece of Christian art um, like this. Uh, Basically... (laughs) Basically, white Jesus holding a lamb, which there's just so many things wrong with this picture. Uh, First of all, uh, Jesus was not white. Uh, He was Middle Eastern uh, from Israel, Palestine. He didn't look like a member of Fleet Foxes, as far as we know. Um, Second, there's not really any evidence that he went around picking sheep up. He was a carpenter his whole life. If he was holding a sheep, the shepherd would have come and been like, what are you doing? Put my sheep down? Go back to your workshop? And he would have been like, my bad, okay, and put the sheep down. But isn't this kind of an accurate picture, right? This is the kind of kind of cheap sentimentality that we can picture a lot of times when we think of Jesus as our shepherd, which I think is a shame because it's actually this really rich and wonderful statement from Jesus. And what I want to look at today is, is I am the good shepherd? And I want to break it up into four different layers of meaning that I think go into when Jesus says this. And my hope is both that we would uh, learn and, and have our curiosity sparked at the different ways in which Jesus says his I am statements, as well as uh, be invited into a posture of surrender to our good shepherd. And so we'll just jump right in. I'm kind of going to do layer by layer, like a layer cake. You know how a cake has a bunch of different layers? So layer one. Layer one is John 9. It's the immediate context and setting of Jesus talking to and saying, I am the good shepherd. And so I basically gave you the first layer at the beginning. Jesus is talking to the blind man who he healed, talking to the Pharisees that kicked this blind man out of their community, and he's talking to his disciples who watched this entire interaction happen. And so when they hear Jesus say what he does in John 10 and say, I am the good shepherd, they would have had in the back of their mind the immediate happenings that were just going on. This healing, this excommunication, and then Jesus finding the blind man again. Okay, so that's the first layer. Pretty quick. This is going to go really fast. Layer two. The second layer is the general cultural understanding that the people listening to Jesus would have had of things like shepherding, sheep, and sheep pens, that kind of language that Jesus uses. Unless you in here grew up on a farm or in the Central Valley that, where there was a lot of farmers in your community, I think for me, I did not grow up around farms, and so I hear generally what Jesus is saying, but I don't actually know the day-to-day ins and outs of what it means to shepherd, what it means to uh, be a sheep, what it means to have things like a sheep pen. But the people listening to Jesus would have known because this was very common. And so when Jesus says, I am the gate, or he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out, they would have had in their mind the sheep pen that was right over there. They would have been able to probably see it. And a sheep pen was a large protected pen that would house all of the sheep of a community. And so the shepherds would take their flocks into the hills and then bring their individual flocks back to the town for the night and lead their sheep through a gate into the sheep pen, which was basically a large uh, pen with high walls to protect from predators, to protect from thieves and robbers who would try to steal the sheep. And it was a place of, of safety, it was a place of refuge for the sheep. And then in the morning, 
the shepherds would come to the gate of the sheepfold and begin to call their sheep by name. And so shepherds had these individual calls. Some of them used instruments. Some of them just made noises in a certain way. Uh, But sheep actually have this ability to pick out the voice of their shepherd and to follow their shepherd's voice even when there's a bunch of other noise going on. And so you'd have all these shepherds standing outside the gate calling to their sheep. And the sheep would be waking up and hearing the call. And then they would file out of the gate and begin to divide themselves naturally following their shepherd, who would then lead their sheep out into the fields. And so when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, not only was there a basic understanding of the people listening of what it looked like to shepherd, but there was also a very uh, deep familiarity with the Old Testament metaphor of God is our shepherd, and we as people in Israel, his chosen people, are his sheep. It's one of the main metaphors of the entire Bible, that God is our shepherd and we are his sheep. And so you get verses like Isaiah 40, verse 11, the Lord tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Of course, Psalm 23, which might be the most famous chapter in the entire Bible, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. They were familiar with this metaphor. And it's a really, really good metaphor, I think, for us as people and for God as our shepherd. Here's why. Sheep on their own, without a shepherd, they would die really quickly. So sheep are totally domesticated, and without a shepherd leading them and telling them where food was, telling them where water was, they would literally eat everything around them and then basically stand there and starve to death because they wouldn't know where to go. They were that helpless. And so a shepherd would be the person that they were utterly dependent upon to even live, to exist. Sheep are stubborn animals. They are uh, quick to wander away or to try and escape. And shepherds would have to know which sheep were their own and how many sheep were in their flock. And so when I look out at a flock of sheep, I don't know if I could tell the difference between the two sheep that were directly in front of me, but a shepherd, not only would he know how many sheep were in his flock, but he would be able to tell individually which sheep were which and which ones were missing if there were any missing. And so they would go and they would find the missing sheep and bring the sheep back into the flock. They would know even in more detail which sheep were the ones who were most prone to wander, the ones who made it a habit of escaping or moving away from the flock so they were left on their own. And they would be on the lookout for those sheep as they began to wander. They would make sure that those sheep wouldn't get a chance to escape in that way. Sheep need protection from their shepherd, from predators, and from themselves. And so the shepherd's job, one of the jobs, would be to protect the sheep from predators. Sheep are basically defenseless animals. Their best defense when they're being attacked is to run slowly away, which in like nature, in terms of defense mechanisms, like poison is a pretty good one, running really fast is a really good one, shells are good. Running slowly is basically the bottom of the list of how to defend yourself. This is true of people, by the way, too. Don't just run slowly if you're being attacked. The only thing worse than running slowly would be just standing there, right? So at least they don't just stand there, but they basically have no defenses. And so the shepherd's job would be to protect them from any sort of wolf or lion or bear or anything like that that would try to eat them. But they would also have to protect sheep from themselves. And what would happen is that in the flock, the older and stronger, larger sheep would bully the younger, weaker sheep for the best grazing land, for maybe a shrub or a bush that they really wanted to eat. 
And so this poor, weak sheep would be sitting there eating, and all of a sudden, this strong sheep would come over to him and just begin to headbutt him in the side until that sheep either has to fight back or move. And the shepherd's job would be to see that kind of anxiety and tension, uh, that conflict happening, and to walk in between the sheep and by his very presence bring calm to that situation. All right, the last fact about sheep that I'm going to tell you. Uh, More than any other domesticated livestock, sheep have the capacity to destroy an environment or to help it flourish. And so a shepherd would know this fact. And basically, if a sheep was left to, a flock was left to an area, they would eat it bare. They would eat the very roots of the plants and the grass so that nothing could ever grow again. But if a flock was shepherded well, the way that they graze and something about their manure brings so much nutrients to the soil that when everything grew back again, it would grow back, it would grow back abundantly. And so the shepherd would know where they needed to go that day in the hills, in the fields. So he would know, okay, this area needs to be grazed and this area needs to be left alone so that it can grow back. And when you hear all of these things, at least for me, it begins to make a lot of sense why the Bible uses the metaphor as, of us as sheep and God as our shepherd. Aren't we similarly dependent on God for our very existence, right? Every breath that we take, every morning that we wake up is a gift from God that he doesn't have to give to us, but he does. Aren't we similarly stubborn and in need of God to bring us back to seek us out when we wander, and gently bring us back into his flock. And I don't know if there's a better description of humanity in general than us having the capacity to completely destroy and wreak havoc and horror and death on an environment, or to bring incredible life and love and community and beauty to a place and an environment. And so these are some of the cultural understandings that they would have had, that people listening to Jesus would have had when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. It would have informed the way that they heard Jesus. Okay, that's layer two. Layer three is Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, kind of a random chapter in the middle of the Bible. And almost every commentary that I looked at, uh, which was like three or four, Uh, but most commentators would agree that when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he's uh, alluding to this chapter in Ezekiel. Now, really quick overview of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was written about 500 years before the time of Jesus, Um, and what had happened around the time of Ezekiel is that Israel had been so disobedient and had had acted so evilly in the eyes of God that he allows Babylon, uh, a neighboring empire, to come and conquer Israel. And so Babylon comes and their armies take an entire generation of Israelites, the best and the brightest men and women, and they take them away from Israel to Babylon to be servants and slaves. And worse, they destroy the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, and they destroy the temple itself, which was the center of life for the Jewish people. They burn it to the ground. And so God sends Ezekiel in the midst of that to reveal and speak powerfully to Israel, telling them the sin and the evil that they've done that caused this kind of destruction, but also to speak these really hopeful promises that one day he would rescue them from their exile, that God would rescue them, and establish his kingdom through Israel once again. 
Which brings us to Ezekiel 34. So if you guys have your Bibles, open to Ezekiel 34, and some of it will be on the screen. Um, But it begins with God talking to the shepherds of Israel. And now shepherds in the ancient Near East was a really common term for uh, rulers, for kings, the people who governed a people. And in the first 10 verses, God just lays into the shepherds of Israel. He says, you have acted selfishly. You have been cruel and harsh to your sheep. You have fed yourself and gotten fat while your flock has starved. And in verse 4, he gives a very detailed description of what this bad shepherding looks like. And he says this, You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strayed, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. The only other time that phrase ruled harshly and brutally has been used in the Old Testament is when God describe when the Bible describes how Pharaoh would lead and basically uh, torment and rule the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt. So God's saying, remember how badly Pharaoh treated you to the point that I had to come and rescue you out of Egypt? You are treating your flock that badly. That's how evilly you're acting in my eyes. And then he switches and he begins to speak to the flock themselves, to the people themselves that have been shepherded badly. And this is what he says, and it'll, it'll be on the screen. God says, For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them back into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. And I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the stray. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Jump down to verse 20. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean, Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I am the Lord. I, the Lord, will be their their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken." And so what this passage, what Ezekiel 34 is describing, is uh, it's describing God's promise to the people of Israel that there would be a Messiah coming. This figure, this king figure, in the same way that David was a king and a shepherd over the nation of Israel, that God was promising that there would be a, a king and a shepherd like David that would come and free Israel from her oppressors and usher in God's kingdom on earth again. And so what God's saying is both, I will be your shepherd, and the way that I will be your shepherd is through this figure, this Messiah. And so when we hear that, when we read Ezekiel 34, do you see how it reinforms our understanding of what just happened in John 9, in the first layer? When Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, when he says, I am the good shepherd, he's connecting himself to Ezekiel 34. 
And those listening would have been able to see in front of them the way that Ezekiel 34 plays out, this contrast between bad shepherding and good shepherding. It had just happened before their very eyes. So think about it, right? The blind man is very much the the sick sheep in need of healing. He's blind. He needs his injury healed. He needs to be uh, bound up again with the healing touch of God. He's marginalized and needs to be be brought back into the flock. The Pharisees are the bad shepherds, right? Instead of rejoicing and giving glory to God that this incredible miracle had taken place, that he had been, this blind man had been healed, they are Ezekiel 34.4. They don't strengthen the weak. They don't heal the sick. They don't bind up the wounded. In fact, they even deny and ignore the fact that it even had happened, that this healing had happened. They don't bring back the strayed. They don't search out the lost. In fact, they throw this healed man out of their very community. They cast him out of their flock. And Jesus is the good shepherd, right? He is Ezekiel 34, 16, which is on the screen. He touches the blind man's eyes and he heals them. He heals sickness. He seeks out the blind man after he's been excommunicated from the flock. He brings the blind man back into his flock and into the very presence of God revealed through Jesus. Jesus is the living embodiment of how Ezekiel 34 promises that God would shepherd his people. Which brings us to the last layer, layer four. And the last layer is the Feast of Dedication. Um, We know it today as Hanukkah. And if you noticed, I stopped reading right at verse 22, mid-sentence, which is kind of a strange place to stop, but I did that for a reason. So in verse 22, it says in John 10, then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem, and it was winter. Okay, why did I stop there? That seems like a very random place to end. The fact that John 9 and 10 took place around the festival of dedication is actually a really important clue to what John is wanting us to see. Hanukkah, of course, is something that Jews still celebrate today. Um, It celebrated a successful revolt against Assyrian Empire and basically a reestablishing of their independence as a nation about 170 years before the time of Christ. And of course, it's famously known for the miracle of the oil where the menorah in the temple uh, had only enough oil to burn for one day, but it ended up burning for eight days and eight nights because God miraculously allowed it to extend. And there's a reason why John puts this little piece in. This is what one New Testament scholar says. The festival of dedication celebrates the victory of the Maccabean revolt against the oppressive Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes IV. It recalled both the renewal of temple worship and the institution of national independence, like the 4th of July, or say the celebration at the end of apartheid and the freedom of the South African people. But by Jesus' day, the political scene had shifted again. The independent Jewish kingdom established by the Maccabean revolt had not lasted long. In the time of Jesus, Judea was ruled by a Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and the Jewish people were once again under the thumb of a foreign power, Rome. The celebration of Hanukkah, the festival of dedication, under these circumstances would have been a time when the Jewish people looked back nostalgically to an era of past national glory and more dangerously looked forward in hope to Israel's future liberation. And so what he's saying is that when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, when he's using Messiah language from Ezekiel 34 of I am the good shepherd, he's doing it against the backdrop of the time of year when the nation of Israel would have been most alert and most hopeful for a coming Messiah that would come and liberate and rescue and free them once again. Okay, it's kind of hard for us to uh, 
identify with this, right? We, we live in America, which for the past few decades has been one of the more powerful nations in the world. But imagine if one day, out of nowhere, Canada invaded America. <laughs> that out of the blue, the armies of the North came and they brought their, their hockey and their bears and their general politeness, which is basically all I know about Canadians, but they brought that to America and they, they conquered us. Now imagine that we were under their rule for a really long time and that God gives America this promise. And he says that one day, I'm going to send a figure, a person who's going to save you from your Canadian oppressors. And imagine that we tell this story to our children and they tell their sto this story to their children and it's this story that's repeated over and over and over again, this hope of a coming person that would free us and once again give us a free nation. Imagine what it would be like to celebrate the 4th of July under the rule of a foreign power. Wouldn't we be nostalgic for a time when we were free and also really hopeful for this promise of God to come true that he would free us again from being ruled by Canada? <laughs> Imagine that right around the 4th of July, so mid to late June, you begin to hear rumors that we think we might have found this person. We think that the person who is going to lead us from underneath Canadian rule is here. Wouldn't you be filled with hope? Wouldn't you be filled with maybe doubt? Wouldn't you be filled with some cocktail of confusion and anticipation and doubt and excitement all at the same time? You would want it to be true so bad, but you wouldn't know if it was. This is the kind of hope and the anticipation that people would have had when they hear Jesus say, I am the good shepherd. They would have been thinking in this way. This is what Richard Hayes says again. The good shepherd is not simply a consoler who promises to care for the souls of those who believe. Rather, Jesus is staking symbolic claim to be the new David, the restorer and ruler of Israel. But he has said all of this in figurative language. So what this means is that I am the good shepherd carries with it not just what happened in John 9, not just generally how sheep function, not just Ezekiel 34, but it also carries with it a hope of a coming king to rescue and liberate and restore a people. Do you see how these different layers add to our understanding of when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd? It's not just some sentimentality of I'm your good shepherd in a vague spiritual sense, but it's something deeply rooted in the history and the story that the Bible tells of Israel and God's people and deeply rooted in the coming promises of God. And so when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, what he's saying is, you know the way that shepherds care for their flock, physically and tangi tangibly provide a safe space for them? I am a good shepherd in that way. And do you know how in the morning shepherds call their sheep by name and take them into pasture so they can be fed and roam and lie down to rest? I am that kind of good shepherd. If an individual comes to me, that person will be kept safe and I will allow him to come in and out freely and find pasture to their satisfaction. And do you remember in Ezekiel 34 when God describes how he himself will be the shepherd of his people and how he will heal the sick and he will bind the injured and seek the stray and the lost and bring them into his loving care? Do you see how I just lived that out in this very way of God shepherding with the man, this blind man that I just healed of his sickness and then brought back into my flock and into my presence? And do you remember how in Ezekiel 34, God has really strong language for bad shepherds who would use their privilege and their power and influence to rule harshly and to rule brutally? 
Do you see how some of you standing here listening to me treated this blind man in the very way that Ezekiel warned against? You have been bad shepherds to him. And do you remember Hanukkah when God delivered you from the Syrian empire and restored the temple again? And do you remember the promises that one day God's Messiah will restore Israel to its glory and bring God's kingdom to earth? And do you remember how God describes this coming Messiah as a shepherd king in the same way that King David was who will act on God's behalf and rule with perfect gentleness and justice? I am that good shepherd. I am the good shepherd whose love for his flock is so great that I am willing to lay down my life for his sheep. I'm willing to die so that you can be in the fold. That's what Jesus is saying when he's saying, I am the good shepherd. Those are all the different layers that go into it. Which leaves us with how do we respond then? How do we respond to this kind of good shepherd? What is Jesus' invitation to us? Well, my guess is it's probably different to every person in this room. When we hear Jesus say, I am the good shepherd, some of us may hear the simple reminder that in the same way a shepherd's presence brings comfort and peace and protection to his sheep, that Jesus is with you in that way and you don't need to fear, that you are secure with him. Some of us may be reminded that in Christ we are ultimately safe and no matter how safe our circumstances may seem, we are secure in his presence. Some of us need to be reminded when we hear, I am the good shepherd, that life in Jesus' flock is not one characterized by anxiety and rushing and hurry, but by the peace and the freedom and the delight that comes with being shepherded by him into green pastures. Some of us in here may need to actually experience for the first time Jesus calling to us. We need to hear the voice of Jesus, our good shepherd, and to follow him into the fields to experience life and life abundantly with Jesus. Some of us in here, when we hear, I am the good shepherd, we are actually reminded of the ways in which we're not being shepherded well. We're reminded of the place where we really need to experience the kind of healing that the blind man experienced. And I'm thinking specifically of people in here who are experiencing some form of chronic pain some form of disease, some form of maybe chronic and crippling depression and anxiety. When you hear Jesus say, I am the good shepherd, for some of us, it's not actually that hopeful because we are experiencing not the kind of shepherding that Jesus promises. And that leaves us feeling confused. And that's okay. Some of us have been shepherded badly by people in authority over us, whether it's at work, whether it's in community, whether it's uh, in relationships in general, you have experienced the kind of shepherding that bullies and abuses and hurts and dismisses people, that cuts off relationship and excommunicates people from community. And when we hear Jesus say, I am the good shepherd, what we need to be reminded of is that Jesus' good shepherding doesn't dominate us, it doesn't dismiss us, it doesn't kick us out, but it faithfully and gently searches for us, brings us back, and gives us a love so great that he is willing to die. And some of us in here are actually in positions of shepherding, positions of authority and leadership. And when we hear Jesus say, I am the good shepherd, we need to ask ourselves, am I shepherding the way Jesus would or am I shepherding the way the Pharisees did to the blind man? We need to actually pause and ask ourselves, how would the people that I'm shepherding describe my shepherding and my leadership? No matter who you are in this room, 
My guess is that you can point to the areas in your life where you've experienced good shepherding that Jesus describes in John 10, that the blind man experiences in John 9, that Ezekiel 34 describes, and there are areas in our life where we're not experiencing that good shepherding. And the question that I want to challenge us with and leave us with today is are we willing to come before Jesus, our good shepherd, and express to him both our gratitude in the ways that he has shepherded us well, and are we willing to take an honest look at those areas where we are not experiencing the kind of good shepherding he describes, where we are experiencing a lot of anxiety and fear and hurt and maybe physical suffering, where we're filled with doubt and uncertainty and unbelief that Jesus could be the good shepherd in this situation, in this circumstance, in this relationship? Are we willing to express both of those to him? And are we willing to say in our unbelief, Jesus, that has been my experience, but I believe that you are my good shepherd. Please help my unbelief. Please help my unbelief. Near the beginning of John 10, Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And I've always really loved that phrase that they will have life and have it to the full. I think it perfectly describes what life with Jesus should be, what life with Jesus ultimately will be. And what I want to leave us with today is this beautiful description of just what that life to the full looks like. And it comes from the very, very end of Ezekiel 34. And as we bring our gratitude, no matter our life circumstances, we bring our unbelief to Jesus, I want to leave us with this promise that ultimately one day, this life to the full will be true. That ultimately one day, our good shepherd will return and that we will experience this kind of fullness of life with Jesus forever. And this is how Ezekiel 34 describes it. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forest in safety. I will make them lie down in the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord. When I break the bars of their yoke, and rescue them from the hands of those who enslave them. They will no longer be plundered by nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety, and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. They will know then that I, the Lord, am their God. And I'm with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You are the sheep, the human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. Let's pray.